2: This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we are doing something a little different. There is a reporter and producer here at New Hampshire Public Radio where we make Civics 101 named Jack Rodolico. And for the past little while, Jack has been reporting out what I consider a really interesting, good story. Specifically, and I'm not going to bury the lead here, this is the story of how Martin Luther King Jr. Day came to be a holiday at the federal level and in every state across the country. And the thing about this particular holiday is that it did not happen overnight, nor did it happen without a fight. And the most epic of those fights, the longest resistance to the holiday honoring Dr. King, it happened right here where we make this podcast. Jack got the details. Hello, Jack Rodolico.
0: Hello. It's good to be here with you.
2: It's good to have you here.
0: I'm an honored uh, guest. I am honored to be a guest.
2: I'm an honored guest. I can't call myself an honored That's not how that
0: (laughs) works. But I am honored to be here.
2: We're honored to have you. And you have a story for us today. I do,
0: yeah. Okay, so this is a story of MLK Day. Yep. How it became a thing. So there's this fact about New Hampshire that I have known for a long time. And it's honestly something that I found unsettling about this place uh, where I have chosen to live. And I finally got to the point where I just needed to understand it. There's a story there, and I wanted to know what it was behind this fact. Okay, the fact is New Hampshire Was the fiftieth state to recognize Martin Luther King Jr. Day the last state to do it?
2: When you say the last state, like how long did this take?
0: Well, New Hampshire. (laughs) Okay, how long did it take? It was not a close race. It was not a close race. I mean, something like a decade and a half after the federal government. Something like more than a decade after most states recognized MLK Day. That's when New Hampshire got on board.
2: Why did it go down that way?
0: That's what I wanted to know. And I think the most natural place to start is with a guy named Harvey Key.
4: My name is Harvey Key. Uh, I am a human
0: rights activist, period. Now, you were born in Birmingham, right? Yeah. 1932. So Harvey Key is 90 years old. Um, He is uh, like an extremely active 90-year-old gentleman, still involved in the community, still involved in politics in different ways. He's the head of the New Hampshire Human Rights Commission, among other things.
2: So he was born in Birmingham. Now he's living in New Hampshire. Yep. When did he come up here?
0: Yeah, Harvey came up here with his family in the 70s. He raised his kids here. But Birmingham is what made Harvey Key who he is. The MLK story that you're about to hear, Harvey has told this before. In fact, he once told it before the New Hampshire state legislature back in 1999. Harvey was a state rep at that time.
5: As a little boy, I could not walk the streets and look white people in the eye because that was a threat to white people. I could be arrested for disorderly conduct. I could not shine shoes on the street. I could not deliver paper on the streets.
0: Harvey grows up deep in the Jim Crow South.
2: OK, so this is this era following the end of Reconstruction, right, mm-hmm. where there are all of these laws in a lot of former Confederate states and some border states that basically codified a racial caste system. That They were anti-black, anti-enfranchisement laws that dictated a whole swath of behaviors for how black people in America would have to act.
0: Yes, and enforced With state violence and vigilante violence.
5: As a young man, I saw many shootings of colored men who supposedly had stolen something from a store and shot in the back by white policemen. For a long time, I found it difficult to look people in the eye. Sometimes I find it difficult now. At age 14, I had no self. Esteem. I didn't have much hope for being anybody, so I became a gang, gang leader. I was put in jail at age 15 for assault and battery with an attempt to murder.
0: So, Harvey is on this very precarious course as a young man. He's dejected, he's angry, and he's surrounded by violence against black men like him. So, he starts to respond with a bit of violence himself. That's how he describes it. At the same time, he wasn't entirely without hope and positive examples of what his life could become. He has black role models. He has black teachers at school, um, people who give him some hope that he can have a future.
4: My mother had a fourth-grade education, and she said to me one time, if they can, you can. Well, I don't know what that meant at that time.
0: I know now. Despite setbacks, despite being jailed at 15, Harvey gets out of jail and starts to do really well in school. He is very smart, very studious. He goes on to college and to grad school. He develops a stronger sense of self. But as an adult in Birmingham, he still has this hot coal of anger in his chest. Because whenever he tries to assert his rights or even just dream about his future, he cannot do it. He can't vote told me if I wanted to vote, I had to count the number of beads in a jar. He can't get a job?
4: And I had a degree in pre-med. They said I had too much education.
0: They didn't have enough. I don't know whatever they said, but I couldn't get a job. He even joined the army and fought in Korea. But there, he got no relief from the racism all around him. He tells this story about waiting in line at the mess hall. One of the soldiers
4: says, why don't you get back there where you belong? I has a uniform on, same troop. And he had the nerve to say, get in the back where you belong.
0: And so after the Korean War, Harvey comes back to Birmingham and he's just getting fed up. You know, he has a lower tolerance and he's not easily intimidated. He starts carrying a gun and he says that he was ready to use it if he had to. And just as Harvey has taken all that he can, Martin Luther King Jr. is about to advance the front line of the black freedom struggle to Harvey's hometown of Birmingham. So in the spring of 1963, King and other leaders of the black freedom struggle descend on Birmingham.
6: It was against this background that Dr. King was asked what he meant when he said that achievement of a breakthrough in Birmingham could crack the whole soft. Well, Birmingham is a symbol of hardcore resistance to integration. It is probably the most thoroughly segregated uh, city in the United States, and it has had uh, more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches than any city in the United States.
0: There's this campaign to desegregate the city, and King and others at the time said, you know, so goes Birmingham, so goes the country, potentially, right? That was the idea. And it's this—63 is this whiplash window of time in Birmingham. You know, a lot of things that we might know about from history books happened in this, like, six-month period. There were hundreds of arrests.
6: Arrests were made in mass lots. Everyone charged with the same offense, parading without a permit. The Negroes had asked for permits and
0: had been denied them. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, he wrote that year. Uh, There was a children's march where kids were blasted with fire hoses. Fire hoses. These are, you know, images of the civil rights movement that many people have seen attacked by police dogs. Um, There was even that church bombing where four little girls were murdered at a church.
1: And they died in Birmingham at the 16th Street Baptist Church, rallying point of the Negro Drive in the nation's most segregated big city. Dynamite exploded on a Sunday morning, killed four little girls in Sunday school, injured 20 other Negroes.
0: So through all this there is this one place in the city that serves as a hub for all of this civil rights activity for King and other activists. It's called the A.G. Gaston Motel. It is
4: the only motel in the city of Birmingham that allowed colored folks,
0: Negroes, to spend a night. Now, Harvey didn't ever spend a night there, but there was a hotel bar, which was one of the only places he and his friends could drink.
5: And we used to have a few cool ones, I think you know what I mean. Uh, On this one day, we were having a cool one. And Martin Luther King was having a conference with some of his SLC leaders or members. And shortly thereafter, a big bomb blew a hole in the wall. The day in
0: 1963, after the city and protesters announce a truce, someone detonates a bomb at the A.G. Gaston Motel. Um, It's an explosion. It tears through the building, actually just below the room where King and others were organizing.
5: And me and my boys were ready to go after them because we were tough and young and not too smart. But we were ready to pick up anything we had to go and get the guys and kill them.
0: Now, before Harvey acts on this impulse, which could very likely get him killed... Um, for whatever reason, before he does, he decides to do something else. He's heard about this man, Dr. King.
4: You know, he was just a preacher, you know.
0: And he goes to this press conference to hear King speak. And he says he was electrified. That was his word, electrified. And after the speech, he talks to King.
4: And he could see the anger on our face. He said, hey, where are you going? What are you doing? And we said, we're going to... Go and get him. He said, no, that's not the way we do it. And he gave us some other kind of soft soap story.
0: <laughs> what and, do you mean a soft soap in story? In other words, you, you, that's not the way we're going to fight this battle. Harvey cannot quote what Dr. King said to him in that moment. Harvey does remember exactly how it made him feel.
4: And he didn't say it. I can't remember exactly what he said. Sure, But whatever he said changed my... It was impressive enough that I didn't carry a gun anymore. But Just like that? Did it it, it change? It
0: changed. But you didn't even know who he was? Didn't know who he was. He was just that charismatic. Yes. In this moment, Harvey was sort of looking off into the distance, and I swear it felt... Like for a moment, he was back in 1963. This young man on the verge of vengeance with all of these emotions, standing in front of Dr. King and changing. And he just froze up while we were talking. It feels like you're there, yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Mm
4: -hmm. It's tough. It's hard to think that other human beings treated us so poorly but I was changed from feeling the hate about how I was treated as a youngster in Birmingham but I was changed instantly. I'm better off because I carry, I want to say it this way, he never said this A pocket full of happiness wherever I go now. I didn't have that before.
0: This is the story of what it took for America, for all of America, to set aside a single day to honor a single black life. It is a life that profoundly changed those of others. But it's not actually a story about MLK. It's a story about the politics of transforming a person into an official national symbol. Harvey Key is going to play a role in the final stage of that transformation, as will the state of New Hampshire, and we'll return to there soon. But I want to stay in the 60s for just a moment here, because, of course, that is where this all starts. The story actually starts right after Martin Luther King was assassinated, okay? So he is murdered, Memphis, Tennessee, April 4th, 1968. And immediately, there is this massive outpouring of grief across the country, particularly in black communities.
4: This is how Washington looked from the air tonight.
1: At one point early in the evening, more than 100 fires were burning, some of them in an
0: area just 20 blocks from the White House. In the immediate days after King's assassination, there are riots, uh, particularly in northern cities across the United States.
4: And as darkness fell, arrests increased. To this hour, more than 700 people have been arrested, some of them picked up in spot checks by police enforcing the curfew.
0: You know, and this is this expression of frustration with you know, living conditions with job opportunities, everything that King stood for and fought for in the black freedom struggle. You know, it's not like everything had been fixed by 1968. And so it was just this overflowing outpouring of anger and grief.
7: And so I said, what, what is the greatest
0: honor that I could pay this man? What do I do now? Okay, so this is John Conyers. He's dead now. This tape is from 2008. And Conyers was a Democratic congressman from Michigan. He actually served in the House for 52 years. And he was one of the founding members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Influential guy for a long time. Back in 1968, he was only in his second term in the House. And after King is assassinated, Conyers wants to do something. And he has an idea that would become the seed of this huge social movement.
7: And I called Coretta Scott King and I asked her permission and agreement and uh, reintroduced the bill four days after his
0: assassination.
2: All right, what bill is he talking about here?
0: Conyers' bill would set aside the third Monday of January as a federal holiday, The federal government would shut down every year specifically to honor King's life and sacrifice. Now, today, we live in a world where King is pretty much universally recognized as a hero. That was not the case when he was alive. I mean, he was very popular among black Americans, but among whites, he was divisive. He was unpopular. I mean, there was actually a national poll that found 31% of respondents said that King brought his death upon himself. Wow! So in 1968, Conyers' bill went nowhere in the House. But while the federal government sat on its hands, the idea of an MLK Day starts to grow in popularity at the local level, all throughout the 70s.
7: It happened from the ground up. Uh, Because the theory was, well, there's a lot of emotion around losing Dr. King. But as the years would pass, the
0: enthusiasm would diminish. But just the opposite happened. Activists and local governments start to say, "Okay, if Congress won't declare a King holiday, then we'll declare a local King holiday. Cities like D.C., St. Louis, Atlanta celebrate... MLK Day. Those were the first MLK Day celebrations. Often they were just activists without government sanction, celebrating on their own. But cities very quickly got on board.
7: In local
0: areas, in schools, states passed resolution. So you could see this momentum start to grow. State legislatures declare state holidays. The first one was Illinois. Uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey follow, and it actually starts to become a bit of a red line in politics. Are you for the holiday or are you against it? That becomes a symbol for other things that you believe in.
2: I don't know if you'll actually know the answer to this question, but let's give it a shot. So, you know, you're saying that it's happening at the school level, it's happening at the city level, at the state level. Was there a shift among the sort of whole body politic when it came to sentiment about Martin Luther King? Yes,
0: there was actually, because there is polling on King's popularity before he died and after he died, actually for years, going up into recent years. And every single poll through the decades finds that he is more, particularly among white Americans, more and more universally recognized as a hero. In the 70s, the picture was still very muddled, but you did have cities and you did have local places that were fully on board uh, before everybody else.
7: Unions started including it as a collective bargaining day in their negotiations. And
0: more people began joining on the bill in the Congress. So then the local pressure boomerangs back to Congress.
6: I support the Democratic platform called for making his birthday a national holiday, and I will work for it. In
0: 1979, President Jimmy Carter gives a speech at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. This was the church where King was a pastor. He is there with Coretta Scott King behind him, all of these civil rights activists, and he publicly throws his support behind the bill. It's a big deal.
6: And I particularly hope that in this 50th anniversary year that I will be able to sign a bill proclaiming January the 15th as a national holiday in honor of Dr.
8: King's (laughs) principal.
0: The momentum's moving. The bill does go to the House floor. It loses by five votes that year. So Jimmy Carter does not get that opportunity, but it sort of enters the public consciousness in a way that it had not before, particularly because this is one of the most interesting things I feel like I learned. Okay, Stevie Wonder. Yeah. The Stevie Wonder Happy Birthday Song. I know it well. I know it well.
2: Happy birthday! Happy birthday!
0: Okay, so if you ask me, this is the best birthday song. It's better than the birthday song, right? I agree. It's a birthday anthem. I have heard it all my life. And Stevie Wonder wrote this song for Martin Luther King Day. He released it in 1980, Specifically, calling out the whole country. Why won't we honor this man? Why not create a holiday? The hook is happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. But the rest of the song, all of the lyrics, are about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
2: I cannot believe I didn't realize that.
0: I did not either.
6: I'd like for all of you to please join me, urging the U.S. Senate and your senators in particular, to vote yes on s 400 a bill to make dr martin luther king jr's birthday a national holiday. So, in
0: 1982, Stevie Wonder and Coretta Scott King deliver 6 million signatures to the speaker of the house supporting this holiday. And the next year, in 1983, 15 years after John Conyers first introduced the bill, it passes in the house by a wide margin, 338 to 90. So makes it out of the House, and then it goes to the Senate, where it passes by another wide margin, 78 to 22, but only after some very anti-MLK filibustering on the part of Jesse Helms. He was a North Carolina senator who made campaign commercials along the lines of this.
6: You needed that job, and you were the best qualified, but they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair?
0: The commercial shows just a pair of white hands. Wow. It was actually called White Hands. That's what Uh, the commercial was known as. Unbelievable. So the Senate shuts Helms' filibuster down as quickly as it can, but not before he gets across some pretty forceful messaging about MLK being a communist.
2: Which I feel we should say he was not.
0: He was not. MLK was not a communist, but it's worth bringing up because plenty of people across the country, predominantly white people, agreed with Helms' assessment of MLK, which would be a part of King's legacy for a long time. Anyway, the bill passes. Reagan signs it into law.
6: The White House staged an impressive ceremony today. The president and Dr. King's widow walking into the Rose Garden together in an effort to spruce up Mr. Reagan's tattered civil rights image the president signed the bill, which he had so strongly opposed, making
9: Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday.
4: Then we will see the day
10: when Dr. King's dream comes true, and in his words, all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Thank you. God bless you, and I will sing.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but before we do, a reminder that Civics 101 All of the work that we do here, this story that Jack brought us, it's all made possible because our listeners support us, both in spirit and, when possible, with donations. This is public radio. That's how we work. If you're in a position to make a contribution to the show, please consider doing so. It's quick, it's easy, and it's a way for you to show your belief in free, accessible civics education and good stories. Click the Donate button on our homepage at civics101podcast.org.
3: Hey, pet parents. Are you searching for the perfect place for your dog to play? Check out Camp Bow Wow. Our safe and supervised doggy daycare and boarding ensures your pup gets the socialization they crave while giving you peace of mind. With our certified staff and clean and spacious facilities, your dog will have a blast making friends and staying active. Join the Camp Bow Wow Pack today. Your first day is free. Visit us at CampBowWow.com. Franchise opportunities available. Life is a highway, and
4: on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
9: of a
7: detour.
9: Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch.
2: That is the largest employer in the world.
9: And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, that's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job.
2: But if you run a business and you're not the federal government... The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed.
9: 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites.
2: 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets.
9: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com civics.
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast.
9: Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed.
2: You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we are talking to reporter and producer Jack Rodolico about the creation of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This holiday did not come about without a fight. Many fights, in fact. But in 1983, Ronald Reagan finally did sign a bill making MLK Day a federal holiday, which means that it was recognized by the federal government, but not that it had to be recognized by the states. All right, so we've got this federal holiday. Jack, you have established that there are states across the nation celebrating Martin Luther King's birthday as a holiday in that state or in a city or even in a school district. But as I know, a federal holiday does not mean that everyone in the country has to do it, right? It's still up to the states as to whether or not they want to make it a holiday. So how many states are left who are not doing this?
0: Well, Reagan signs the bill in 83. The first federal holiday is three years later in 86. And by 1986, 44 states officially recognize MLK Day. So by the time the first federal holiday comes around, there are only a handful of states that are refusing to create the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And Hannah, I will tell you, you and I are sitting in one of those states. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah. For this handful of recalcitrant state legislatures, this starts to become a pretty potent issue. So, for example, in 1987, Governor Evan Meacham, basically as soon as he is inaugurated, rescinds Arizona's MLK Day.
2: So Arizona had signed it into state law.
0: It had been by executive order, his predecessor. Ah. And he ran campaigning that he would remove that executive order. And he does. Okay. For what it's worth, he was later impeached for other issues. Um, In Idaho, one lawmaker claims MLK Day is a, quote, black holiday. And another state lawmaker in Idaho says, forget MLK. Let's name a holiday after a real black hero. I'm paraphrasing here. Bill Cosby. Okay. Can you imagine? I cannot. I mean, obviously, these positions don't age very well. Now, New Hampshire is on that list, too. And kind of like Congress had for a very long time, the New Hampshire legislature mostly ignored the King Holiday debate until they couldn't. The King State Holiday bill first came up in New Hampshire in 1979, but it took a decade for the pressure to build up. And I want to give you a sense of the lawmakers who were at the state house when this discussion came to a head.
6: It was hard to hide at that time. You could not just blend in. If you can stand in the sea of 400 white people, and still hold your own, you're not doing too bad.
0: This is Democrat Linda Diane Long. She's now a Baptist minister in Georgia. And in the late 80s, she was one of a small handful of black lawmakers in New Hampshire's 400-member House of Representatives. Next up. You have to understand, I was a full-time assistant dean at UNH. Right. And a full-time legislator.
10: Yeah, and a full-time doctoral student with three kids, and I coach hockey and soccer and baseball.
0: That's Wayne Burton, a Democrat and retired college administrator. And finally, Jackie Domain, a Republican. She splits her time now between New Hampshire and Florida, which is where I found her.
1: When I entered the legislature in 1987, I was 37 years old. The average age was 63
0: So the MLK Day pressure is coming from both outside the state of New Hampshire. Uh, We
6: were seeing nationally how the national push for the holiday had picked up steam when Stevie Wonder wrote, you know, the song. And Jesse Jackson, of course, was
0: running for president. And from inside the state, from the state's biggest city. The Manchester
1: School Board determined wanting to recognize Martin Luther King Day in the hopes that it would help get it passed at the state level.
0: So 1989 is a big year for the bill in New Hampshire. It is the first time that the public really turns out in force to tell the legislature to pass this bill.
6: And the hearing itself started off very emotional, you know, with prayer. It was packed. Uh, We had children. We had white people. We had black people. We had um, Native Americans, a variety of people speaking that day. So it wasn't a black issue.
0: A few members of the public spoke against the King holiday. Most spoke in favor. So break this down a little bit for me. You're asked to orchestrate the theater of a floor fight. Five monologues. I would speak last because I had the story of meeting Dr. King. One of the reasons Wayne Burton cared so much about a King holiday bill is that he met Martin Luther King um, back in 1964. MLK came to Wayne's College in Maine for a lecture and he met him in person as and you know as Harvey Key said earlier it was just a life-altering experience for him.
10: So he sat down on a couch and we sh- were talking quite a while and a- after a while I said to him this is all wonderful stuff but what's it got to do with me a white kid in a white school in an all-white state and that's when he said if your conscience stops at the border of Maine you're less of a person than you should be, and you're as responsible for what happens in Birmingham as you are in Brunswick, Maine. And I, I was really taken aback. I'd never been challenged like that to have a borderless conscience.
0: Okay, so now for her part, Jackie Domain had been asked to speak to, but for the opposing side.
1: I was not a fan of Martin Luther King. I understood what he did. But unfortunately for me, I'm the daughter of an army corporal who served on Iwo Chima. And I lost several classmates from elementary school to high school to the Vietnam War. And comments that Dr. King had made...
6: But they asked in rightness, so, what about Vietnam? They asked if our own nation wasn't using massive
5: doses of violence to solve its problem, to bring about the changes it wanted. My questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghetto without having first spoken clearly to the
6: greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government.
0: It's a little hard to hear there, but that is King calling the United States the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He compares state violence against black Americans to America's violence against the Vietnamese. And many Americans, particularly white Americans, considered his words an insult.
1: They didn't volunteer for that war. They were drafted and lost their lives. I felt it was unkind what he had said. And so I got on the floor and opposed the bill.
0: Now, there were lawmakers at the time who were much more cutting. One called King, quote, an evil man. And this did come down to partisan politics. I mean, New Hampshire was controlled top down by Republicans. It basically had been for about 100 years. This is a state at the time where the most powerful media outlet was a newspaper, the union leader, And that paper's editorial board was vehemently against MLK Day. Lawmakers are picking this paper up every day and reading it. And between 1988 and 1991, the union leader published an even 100 editorials and editorial cartoons about MLK Day, relentlessly attacking King and his legacy and his supporters. They called him treasonous. They called him a demagogue. So what was it like to sit there and listen to people propagate these you know
8: I
6: probably had a blood pressure of about 300 over 2,000 during that time
10: they they tried to demonize Dr. King by saying he was a communist because
0: he had gone to North Vietnam during the war how did you take that communism line as uh, a, a Vietnam veteran yourself
10: I I took it quite badly because I had spent, I had almost been killed several times killing communists. And then to be accused of being a communist myself got me angry, quite honestly.
0: So after the hearing, Wayne Burton was in the press a lot. He became sort of a de facto spokesman for the holiday bill. And because of that, he had a target on his back.
10: And I started getting uh, anonymous letters without return addresses king is a crime. you get out of our country and they cut out little letters out of Time magazine and into hate sentences and there were some death threats to me and my kids that people would call on the phone my house phone address house,
0: you're pointing to your phone my in the phone. next room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. and same
10: house yeah and I it's and I was just astounded that someone
0: would uh, would do that. Were you scared for your life? I mean, how did you contextualize those threats?
10: Yes, I was. It it was not dissimilar to some of the feelings I had in Vietnam. Um, It is a terrible feeling to think that the price of doing the right thing may be your life.
2: And I just want to pause here and reflect on this. We are talking about a man who is trying to pass a state holiday, right?
0: Mm-hmm. In 1989, the holiday bill died in the New Hampshire House by a wide margin. Like, legislators voted almost three to one against it.
6: Wow. I, I wasn't that hopeful. I had hoped it. It would change some minds from the hearing. I really hope the hearing would have opened some eyes, but it didn't.
0: So, again, it wasn't terribly surprising that the bill failed. What is surprising, at least to me, is Jackie Domain's response now. Remember, she was opposed to this bill. Did that feel like a victory?
1: No. As in, no. It was very sad. I
0: Sad, remember. really?
1: Yes. Yeah. It was very sad. It stayed with me for a long time.
2: Yes, we won, but what did we win? Wait, OK, so Jackie and other Republicans, they got what they wanted, right? I mean, this is, this is what they were aiming for. So why would she reflect on that and feel sad? That doesn't track for me.
0: So after the vote, Jackie says... Someone in the antechamber of the House screamed at her, called her a racist. This person had tears in their eyes. And Jackie says that whatever her personal feelings are about Martin Luther King, she also understood how important he was to so many other people. And she didn't like the feeling of obstructing progress. She says most New Hampshire voters at that time weren't ready for an MLK day. So she wound up proposing something that she felt could pass the House.
1: The purpose of a civil rights day was to get to move the issue forward and not leave it where it had been left in 1989, in anger. In
0: 1991, the state Senate was ready to create an MLK holiday. They passed a bill to do that, but the House was not. So they compromised. New Hampshire became the only state in the country that celebrated Civil Rights Day. One state rep at the time who hated this compromise said, quote, We would have been more honest to call it the anything but Martin Luther King holiday.
9: Hmm.
2: We're going to take a quick break here, but when we're back, it is the final, insistent push to once and for all spread the celebration of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and work to every
3: state in the nation. Hey, pet parents, are you searching for the perfect place for your dog to play? Check out Camp Bow Wow. Our safe and supervised doggy daycare and boarding ensures your pup gets the socialization they crave while giving you peace of mind. With our certified staff and clean and spacious facilities, your dog will have a blast making friends and staying active. Join the Camp Bow Wow Pack today. Your first day is free. Visit us at CampBowWow.com. Franchise opportunities available.
7: After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Madella. you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Madella, the mark of the fight. Brick responsibly. you reported by Crown & Chicago, Illinois.
2: We're back. You're listening to Civics 101. And today, reporter and producer Jack Rodolico is sharing the story of Martin Luther King Jr. Day and the decades-long struggle to make it Truly a nationwide holiday.
0: Okay, so Hannah, this final stretch of the story is the part that I was honestly most curious about. Because the holiday bill seemingly enters this purgatory period. In hindsight, it feels inevitable that New Hampshire would do this. But it's going to take all of the 90s. (laughs) Like, all of the 90s. So what is going on? What does it take for New Hampshire to finally honor the holiday? That's what I wanted to know. Um, I kind of assumed the bill languished, but in fact, it didn't. At the time, for us, it was pure racism. This is Ray Joseph, and this is where things get really kind of unwieldy and unpredictable. So in 1990, Ray is a student at St. Paul's School, okay? St. Paul's is one of America's most exclusive boarding schools, a high school. Historically, boarding schools are like the epitome of wasp exclusive institutions. But at this time, they were diversifying. And Ray was part of a minority of very bright black students on the St. Paul's campus. By the way, St. Paul's School is two miles from the New Hampshire Statehouse.
9: Uh, You got to remember, this was the late 80s. So we were listening to Public Enemy, Fight the Power, the autobiography of Malcolm X. So... It wasn't me, but one of my roommates said, we should boycott. We should not go to school. And it was that seed of an idea that wound up turning into something to bigger.
0: So Ray and some classmates are like, this is BS. And at first they say, let's walk out of school tomorrow. This is the night before MLK Day in 1990. But they actually start talking to school administrators, like the headmaster, and he says, well, actually, I was going to give you the day off. And you see, this was actually happening all over the state. School administrators all over New Hampshire were saying, forget what the state government says. We make our calendars, so we're going to give students the day off for MLK Day. But Ray and his classmates weren't satisfied with that. They are sharp. They are young. A lot of them are from New York City, and they are just opening their eyes to the culture in New Hampshire.
8: Uh, yeah, you know, in my uh, 15-year-old mind, it was just, New Hampshire was just a place that was beautiful and just empty of all forms of joy and entertainment. You know, it was just, you know, we had Light FM, I think it was 101.9, it was the only radio station. I mean, they didn't even play Bon Jovi. I mean, it was, you know, no Depeche Mode, no anything.
0: This is Tamika Tashera another St. Paul student in 1990.
8: I didn't know that there were people who would not celebrate MLK Day. Like, what are you even talking about? That's unfathomable to me, right?
0: It wasn't just that they saw an omission of Black culture in New Hampshire. Tiffany Gill, another student, says this was sometimes a hostile environment for her.
11: Um, The first and only time I've ever been called a racial epithet um, that I've heard was walking down Main Street in Concord, New Hampshire as a high school student.
0: So MLK Day, 1990, the St. Paul's kids are like, we can't protest the school. But the school winds up sanctioning the protest and joining it.
8: That
2: feels so rare to me. Doesn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. The school was really on board and they made a plan together. Students and faculty and administrators walk from St. Paul's two miles to the statehouse.
9: And so we spent the preceding night that Sunday night. Uh, developing, you know, um, signs, wristbands, armbands.
11: I remember filing out of chapel just as that New Hampshire snow begins to fall upon us. It was cold as it always
8: was in January in New Hampshire. It was was a warm uh, feeling. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful line of us walking, you know, off the grounds together.
11: Nothing had been plowed. And we all just came out with excitement, with a little fear, I think. We didn't know what we were to encounter. And cars honking and showing support.
0: You know, something they all kind of reflect on is that it was kind of like MLK had given them a roadmap for what to do in this situation. March, right? Go to the seat of power, make your demands known.
8: You know, for us, it was like our mini civil rights movement. We believe it is time for change. By honoring Dr.
5: King with a state holiday.
0: Is this the video with you at the bullhorn? You got it. That's exactly right. Yeah.
5: And declare our commitment to realizing King's dreams of eradicating racism, poverty, and violence.
0: So ultimately, this was inspiring for these St. Paul's kids involved, but they had no political clout in New Hampshire, and they knew that, right? They're not old enough to vote. They're not residents of the state. Their parents don't pay taxes here. So after the 1990 march, they start to reach out. I was Forrest Gump in all this, though. You have to understand. I was just in the right place at the right time. This is Mike Vlasich. He was a kid in the Concord Public High School at the time. By the way, Mike is now a Biden appointee in the Small Business Administration. And I have to tell you, like, the number of youth involved in this MLK Day fight in the 1990s in New Hampshire, to me anyway, seemingly a big percentage of them are lifelong activists, and yeah. they will they will tell you that this was activating for them for the rest of their lives. Back then, Mike was a kid who had no contact with this exclusive school in town.
9: If you're a Concord High Public School student, interacting with St. Paul's kids was not the norm for something so close to us, that institution, we wouldn't have thought that we were
0: part of that. St. Paul students and Concord High kids start a letter campaign, and they invite kids to protest with them so that in 1991, more than 1,000 high schoolers descend on the statehouse lawn. So that
11: was a cool thing, again, because you had the, you know, basically the, the black kids from the elite school, you know, with the white townies.
0: This is Arnie Alpert. Arnie had been advocating for MLK Day in New Hampshire since the early 80s. He was on a committee of activists dedicated to this cause. But, you know, they were all adults. They were all politicos, you know. For him, to see a thousand kids come out for MLK Day, it felt like this thing had finally taken on its own momentum.
11: Because the state was resisting the holiday, it actually made it more important. It, it It was a holiday of celebration and resistance at the
0: same time. Up until this point, Hannah, there wasn't too much national press about New Hampshire's stance on MLK Day. But that was about to change because Arizona was about to painfully become the 49th state. So this part of the story is kind of bananas to me. In 1990, the NFL, the National Football League, awards the Super Bowl to Tempe, Arizona.
2: As in Tempe will host the Super Bowl.
0: Tempe will host the Super Bowl and... will draw in the hundreds of millions of dollars that the Super Bowl brings into that area. So the NFL says, "Okay, Arizona, you're in line to host the Super Bowl, but there's a caveat. We will take this game away from you if you continue to reject MLK Day. This was not a popular stance for the NFL to take at the time. The question, though, goes to a popular referendum and Arizona voters reject MLK Day by a slim margin. And the NFL follows through. It takes the Super Bowl away from Arizona with all of its profits. It's a projected $225 million oh, wow. would come into the state. So it's effectively a massive boycott.
2: NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabu said Arizona can continue its political debate without the Super Bowl as a factor. Site selection chairman Norman Brayman said... How could anybody in his right mind go to play there?
0: And I mean, Hannah, like Public Enemy wrote a song at this time called By the Time I Get to Arizona. It is a tirade against Arizona about MLK Day and in the song, which is really good, they name check New Hampshire. Public
2: enemy. I mean, this is just so interesting, right? I, I understand why these songs are being written. It's not just Happy Birthday, right? It's also Public Enemy because it's like this is an unbelievably public display of pretty hard to deny racism.
0: Yes. Well, right? and if you think about if you think about birthday song, Stevie, this is a happy-go-lucky song, right? Yeah. And it's because it's really kind of calling out every way. Public Enemy, it's like you don't want to be Arizona or New Hampshire and Public Enemy's crosshairs. Right. It's very different calling out America for racism and being in those crosshairs as one state. Yeah. So it starts to get pretty intense for these last final states. And then in 1993, Arizona voters redeem themselves. They approve MLK Day finally. And Stevie Wonder and Rosa Parks come to Arizona on MLK Day as like kind of a reward (laughs) to the state, you know. And then the eyes of the nation turn to just one state. And it's like New Hampshire whether it intended or not, sends up a racist bat signal. There is huge press coverage in 1996 of a white supremacist from Mississippi who gets a permit to demonstrate at the New Hampshire State House on MLK Day. He comes here to thank lawmakers. Oh, man.
2: That's a bad look.
0: It's a bad look. Look. last year's celebrations were marred by white supremacists from mississippi but this year only one dissenter was found in the crowd far outnumbered by the young people seeking change
8: because it's our future you know even though the adults they're important too but you know it's going to be us up there next and we want our children to have a better future than you know than we did.
0: by now it's the mid-1990s and this is when it feels like come on it's got to happen in 1996 the political landscape in New Hampshire starts shifting dramatically. The state elects a Democratic governor for the first time in a long time, a woman, Jean Shaheen, who's currently New Hampshire's senior senator. Um, she campaigns on MLK Day. And Democrats make big gains in the state house with women at the helm. Jackie Weatherspoon was elected to the New Hampshire House that year. She was the third black woman ever elected to the New Hampshire House. In 1997, she was on the House floor when the MLK bill lost again. This time the vote count was 178 to 177. Oh.
6: I was there. Oh my God. We lost that by one vote. And you could just hear it, see it,
1: feel it when we lost by one vote. And then it became something like
2: we became a laughing stock. We became the humiliation. That's like an insult. That's just ooh. Well, it just
0: becomes like, what's it going to take?
2: Right, right.
0: You know, Maya Angelou spoke out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spike Lee spoke out. Stevie Wonder. You know, Public Enemy wrote a song. I mean, so was it an element of like, you don't tell us what to do, no matter what it's about. Don't tell us what to do.
9: I think for a certain element that was an excuse that they were using, and they were not understanding that there was an increasing grassroots movement in New Hampshire that wasn't political.
11: Over the years, the further we have gotten from the civil rights movement, there has been a tendency to turn Martin Luther King into something of a Santa Claus of the movement. Tiffany Gill,
0: one of the St. Paul students, She's actually now a historian, an associate professor at Rutgers University. And for her, looking back on this window of time, in a way, it's not really about New Hampshire per se. It's about the disconnect between the way MLK is viewed today, the way he was viewed when he was alive, and the slow march from one perspective to the other.
11: One of the things that I always say is that I have to avoid... Social media on Martin Luther King Day because we are inundated from every political side with sort of shrinking Martin Luther King down into slogans and phrases. So it erases the fact that there was such hatred toward King that he was not the beloved figure that he has come to be within memory. His life was under constant surveillance by the FBI. His family was attacked um, and that he was ultimately assassinated. In
0: 1999, the table was finally set, or so it seemed. The MLK Day bill had failed in the New Hampshire House every time it had come up for the prior 20 years. So nothing was a sure bet. And proponents of the bill wanted a closer, somebody who was really going to make a case, and they picked, to give the last word, to Harvey Key.
8: Recognizes the final speaker, the member from Nasher, Representative Key. We're asking members to be taking their seats. So a roll call has
3: been requested. We're on the last speaker.
5: Thank you, Madam Speaker. Honorable men and women of this historic House of Representatives, I rise to support the addition of Martin Luther King's Name to the current House Bill 68.
0: You remember Harvey, of course. Yes, of course. It's hard to forget from the beginning of the story. That old tape we heard of him earlier, that was from his floor speech to the New Hampshire House in 1999. He told them about meeting King and a few other things, too.
5: I have a granddaughter who is six years old, and she wrote me a poem, and she said, Papa Papa, all the way from Alabama with a banjo on your knee up to New Hampshire to help keep people free. It's tough for me. Members of this august body, please vote for Bill 68
8: before the House is the adoption of the Majority Committee report. The House to be in order. The House to be in order.
0: On May twenty-fifth, nineteen ninety-nine, the New Hampshire House, the final stubborn block of resistance in America to honoring Martin Luther King Jr. with a holiday, it voted two twelve to one forty-eight to do just that. I asked Harvey, how did that feel? Heavenly. Harvey has lived for 90 years of unimaginable change, right? He was born under the thumb of Jim Crow. And now he and his wife own their home in New Hampshire. He has grown kids and grandkids. And he sees history to him for what it is. You know, things move forward. Then they wrench backwards, back and forth. And all he can control is how he feels about it. And how he feels is a gift he was handed in Birmingham by Martin Luther King Jr.
4: I have a pocket full of joy. And I hope to keep carrying a pocket full of joy every way I go. And that makes me 99.9% happy all of the time.
2: This episode was produced by Jack Rodolico and me, Hannah McCarthy. Nick Capadice is my co-host. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Jackie Fulton is our producer. And Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. You can find helpful links, resources, and our entire episode archive at our website, civics101podcast.org. Special thanks to Steve Davis, Arnie Alpert, Meg Heckman, Jada Hebra, Marcy Chong, and Eleanor Dunphy. Music in this episode by Dilating Times, Newell Teal Records, Meter, Scan Globe, Shaolin Dub, Anna Moya, Kirk Osamayo, and Chris Zabriskie. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.
4: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
7: After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown & Port, Chicago, Illinois.